Alright, so the discipleship plan, I wanted to give you a sense of where everything fits together. So the discipleship plan as it regards young men is there's a relatively longer period of time where a person is, is a young man. Because you think about this, when you start training to be a father, you're not a father. <laughs> okay, so you're a young man while you're a young man just starting, and you're a young man while you're training to be a father. It's once you've completed that work of preparing to be a father that you're a father. So there are two stages where you're still a young man. And so 1 John chapter 2 Verse 13b says, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. 14b says, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, this idea of being an overcomer, of being a conqueror, what we're we understand there's a need for zeal and to seek battle to be a conqueror. But there is also a need for strength and for the idea of a steadiness. We talked about how children in the faith need to be brought to a point of steadiness. So the word of God abiding, being present in, helps to make one steady. So it is the knowledge of God and an increase in the knowledge of God that causes one to be more steady. And as we see the value of God more properly, we have a greater zeal for Him, for His glory. And we are given strength. I want to read to you out of Proverbs. I think it's chapter 23. And forgive me, I'm... Not seeing it immediately, but there's a section of Proverbs that talks about how by wisdom a house is built and how it's filled with understanding with every precious thing. And immediately following that text, there is a statement that the man who is wise is mighty and capable of accomplishing. Here it is. It's 24. Forgive me. So let me just read you what wisdom does for you women and for men. 24 verse 3, Proverbs 24 verse 3. Through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So there's the constructive benefit. There's the building process that occurs with man and woman. And then, verses 5 and 6. A wise man is strong. Yes, a man of knowledge increases strength. For by wise counsel you will wage your own war, and in a multitude of counselors there is safety. Now, On the other side, wisdom is too lofty for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. He's not one of the people there with the rulers. So this idea of how do you become strong, your wisdom. So this strength, the young men, you are called to be conquerors. You are called to be strong. You are called to be sturdy. And that makes it so you can be useful. You can accomplish things. You can work together. You can be relied upon in the battle line next to somebody else. And they know that you're not going to run away. You're going to stand your ground and make it so they can rely upon you by their side. So that's the goal. When we get through being established as a child, is to make it so you can be useful, doing things, building things, fighting alongside somebody else. And I think that this has not been taken seriously in the modern church. 
but historically it has been taken very seriously by the church. When you look at the Reformation or when you look at the early church, there's a very serious sense of what it is to help to develop people and to help them understand what they're striving for. So I want you to look at this outline so you have a sense of, of how a person would develop in greater detail. Okay, so the bottom of page one here, the stages of discipleship. Okay, imagine there's a visitor that comes in here or there's somebody that you know who maybe has a nominal profession or a, a weak profession of faith or maybe they're not professing to be a Christian at all, but they're just somebody you know, so they're an acquaintance. Right? They're not a friend. What's a friend? A friend is somebody who knows what's good and they're committed to your good. Okay, so until somebody's committed to your good, they're not a friend. You can love them, but they're not your friend. And so the love of another makes us want to see them know what's good and to be committed to the good and committed to your good. And so you pull somebody in, and your goal with a visitor and your goal with an acquaintance is to use private discipleship and private hospitality to build relationship to help to teach them truth and get them to be in a place where they are pursuing committed discipleship, where they're being catechized, where they want to learn the basic system of the truth. And this catechetical process, right, when a person enters into it, right, when they enter into studying how to get the answers in a question and answer format, they begin to look at the shorter catechism, they study our, our church covenant and consider if these things are so, they are a catechumen. Okay, now, they might be unbaptized. And if that's the case, you have an unbaptized catechumen or maybe somebody who is baptized in a church is not taking this seriously. And you are concerned to see them move into a position where they are actually being discipled. Now, that discipleship process is where somebody is a child and they're actually in the covenant now. They're they're either a child in the faith and they're getting baptized as an adult or they are a covenant child who was born into a Christian home and they're in the context of parents who should be principally discipling them. So that child process, remember we looked at that last time. We're going to continue on. I'm going to be pushing you guys to be ready to do that, to, to pass that as an examination. And my goal is to push you guys to be able to serve and to be relied upon to be able to give the right answers, to be able to disciple others, to, to be somebody who's approved to carry out certain ministry functions. And so that idea, the learning of that process, if you're an adult, that should go quickly. But if it, uh, if it takes more than a year or three years, you start to get into a place where there's a concern that the person is not trying if they're not trying to be established. So for you who have children in your homes, what I want to encourage is to make sure that you want to see that happen. You want to see that establishment of the child in the faith in between somewhere in the ages of 9 and 13. Okay, if, if they've not been able to learn the material it's because you're not teaching it, or there's perhaps some sort of significant disability, or it's because you're not exercising discipline, but... The idea that if you have a child who's been raised in the faith going through this, and you know, let's say as of now, right, you have you have a, a this you're starting it, you have a child who is raised in the faith from today. Some of you have children on the way, right? So for those children, you go, there's no reason why they wouldn't be established in the faith apart from the fact that the Lord does not convert them. 
you would have no reason to expect that they would not be established in the faith from ages 9 to 13. If you're able to teach through those things, help them to be familiar with them. If you're doing family worship, if you're going through those. So that's helpful for you. There are things that are taken out of the Shorter Catechism, the things that are emphasized in the Bible, and they are things that I would say you need to really seek to get your children established so they can be useful at a younger age. Now, the, the process there, once you're baptized and you're continuing to be a catechumen, you're preparing to, to become a communicant member. There's a standard of examination that you have all seen many times that is for being a communicant member. And then the same material is emphasized and there's sort of a greater expectation of somebody's ability to show that they understand it in order for them to be considered established to be able to move on and be a soldier, a young man in the faith, someone who's engaged in the fighting. And the goal there is to take these people who are young men in the faith and to see them equipped and matured to be able to do more, to have more responsibility, to take on more difficult tasks. And a young man in the faith is somebody who is able to assist deacon or an elder or somebody who is somehow more mature and this person could be useful to them and they might not be able to do advanced tasks but they can do at least minor things and they can then be trained to do more they can carry more weight okay so somebody who you could take with you to do evangelism you don't expect them to lead it but you expect them to learn from it and to understand what's happening and you're able to show them the stuff that's going on along the way, talk to them after the particular encounter, explain to them what was wrong, what happened, all that kind of stuff. So you're able to train them. You can be doing other ministry work. You can be doing things to take care of stuff in the church building. You can be helping to prepare materials. You can be helping to deal with whatever logistical concern needs to be dealt with, and they're beginning to learn. They could be just doing ordinary dominion work, alongside for what you might be doing in terms of business or what you might be doing in terms of just private ministry, helping you with your hospitality, whatever, and they are learning to do things that are useful. So this is often done in literal childhood and in literal being a young man when you are spending time with parents simply working with them to get stuff done. Okay, so this process. So also, Christian employers or Christian managers would seek to do this with people. They would simply seek to help people to become more skilled and more useful. So the young man is somebody who you would want to see this completed if you're a covenant child before the age of 20. And if you are older than that, or if you're starting to begin to deal with this in adulthood, like, like what happened with me, I mean, frankly, I wasn't introduced to these reformed documents until after I was 20. Okay? In case any of you think that I had some magical, glorious childhood, first of all, if there were magic involved, make sure to stone the appropriate people. And then secondly, I did not get that. Okay? I, I found the reformed faith when I was in my early 20s. The Lord blessed me with that. I have sought diligently to study. So young man, you want to complete these things if you're already there and you're going, how do I make sure that I am somebody who could be useful as a diaconal office, officer? Well, if you don't want to waste any time, you need to be ready by the age of 25. 25 is the qualifying age when Levites were able to go to the temple work 
and we equate that over into what deacons are able to do. And for as far as a father goes, if you don't want to waste any time, you need to make sure that you are fit for that service by the time of 30, because that's when an elder is able to perform. So you don't want to waste any time. You want to be able to maximally be useful in your lifetime, or you want to see that your children are maximally useful in your lifetime, in their lifetime. Then those are kind of time frames. In Rome, there were certain offices that had this date is when a person was first eligible for it, and this date, and the, the members of the aristocracy, the, the richer and more powerful parts of the society, it was an honor, it was considered an honor if you were able to be ready and qualified, and people wanted to have you in that office at the first year that you were fit for it. And so it was called getting the office in your year. Okay, I want to encourage all of you men to have the desire, if you are under the age already, to be able to be qualified for office in your year. And I would love it if everybody were looking at you and you're some 24-year-old or whatever, everyone's going, oh, if only this guy were 30 so he could be an elder. Right? That's what you want. Don't squander your youth. Don't wait for it. Make sure that everybody's going, it's too bad you're not old enough. That's the desire we should all have, not just out of some sort of vain pride and puffed upness, but out of, out of a desire to glorify God and maximally serve Him. And you can be the most useful type of assistant when you are as good or even better than the person you're assisting. And one of the ways that the Lord keeps particularly gifted people humble, they're making them have to serve people that are less competent than them, supervising them. And so contentedness in that. My expectation, my hope, is that you young people and you children will be more competent, more well-trained, and that you will have a long period of time where you are far more capable than the people that are alive in office over you. That it will take some time, perhaps in some cases, for you to then have to wait to fill offices and fill shoes. But also, our desire is not to simply hold people in places, but to prepare people and send them off. And so if there are people who are very fit, and there are not, there's no need for additional officers here, you know what we should do with them? Is we should send them to plant churches. Okay, So let us have an overabundance of competent and qualified men, and let us have an overabundance of competent and qualified women to be officers' wives. And let us have to send them off. Now, the young man is able to assist a deacon or an elder. He's completed the young man training one. This is what we're going over today. I don't have all of it here listed out, and so we will be continuing in this a second time to talk through. When you've completed that, you are not just a soldier, you become a veteran soldier, so to speak. You are a person who is has experienced things, you've trained, you have applied all sorts of knowledge, you are studying, and I want to have a set of skills training that I would like to encourage, and my intention for the naming of that would be a man of valor, okay, and the, the, the skills training for the elder, my intention is to have that skills training be called the mighty man training, why? Men of valor are people who are decisive, and they have some sort of capability or skill. We find the man of valor used as a label in the scriptures, and the man of valor is the man who is 
able to make decisions. He's able to be decisive in business and in battle. Okay? So we want men to be competent. And competency, the ability to make decisions, to get stuff done, is a marker of a man who's fit to be a deacon. And great skill is the marker of a man who's fit to be an elder. Okay? So an elder is somebody who is not only a man of valor, but is mighty with wisdom, mighty to do battle, mighty. Okay, so a mighty man of valor is one who is skilled and who is decisive. And that's terrifying. And my desire is to see all of you men have valor of decision and skill. And my goal would be to see that the legions of Satan would quake, that we would confront them and they would be terrified that they would flee to avoid. And that the women would be women who are Proverbs 31 women, who are strong, who are courageous, who laugh at the time to come. And so, what I want to communicate is this section, the young man one, is the section that sets up qualifications for deacons that, in terms of their doctrine level, and also for officers' wives. Okay? The level of doctrine that we would expect from a deacon is the same sort of level of doctrine you would expect from an officer's wife. They must hold to the Reformed faith in good conscience. The whole Reformed faith. So that means what has been attained to in terms of our covenanted standard. And that does not mean that you have to be able to defend all of it, prove all of it, argue all of it excellently. It means you have to have studied it, Believe it's true according to the scriptures, and you will have some things that you find more interesting and more powerful and impactful in your life than others, and you'll remember some arguments, but there will be places where you're like, I looked into this, I thought it was true, and I can't really remember why. Okay, that is what the deacon level looks like. It is a spottiness of, I know this, I can argue this, and I don't know, but I remember it being right, and I'll get back to you. That is what the deacon level of understanding looks like and that is what an officer's wife level looks like now when a young man completes the father training he then becomes a father in the faith and so there's sort of young man one young man two or you call it soldier veteran soldier the veteran soldier or the young man two is the person who's in process on the father's training because they finished young man's training. So hopefully that basic outline gives you a sense of how this fits together. And the man who has completed the young man training in terms of young man one and the man of valor training is, is, is someone who has completed the training necessary to be a deacon. And the person who has completed young man two, and therefore the father's training, and has also completed the mighty man training, he is assumed to have already completed the young man one and man of valor, and he is now somebody who's received the sufficient training to be an elder. So that's all laid out in page one. Now, what is a young man? Go to page two. A young man in the faith is someone who is mature enough in the Reformed faith to be put into difficult situations alongside a more mature believer. They are useful and trustworthy. Okay, notice that. They are useful and trustworthy. How are they useful? 
Okay, so children and all of you young women and young men, you want to be useful. You want to look around for things to do. Okay? You want to look. If you see other people working, you want to try to work. You apply this at home, you apply this at church. You want to make sure that when work is happening, you're trying to take up the work. And you're a part of it. Many, man, many hands make light work. When you jump in on the work, you develop skills, you become more competent, more able to provide usefulness, and you are desirable. Somebody who is useful, people much prefer to be around useful people. They much prefer to bring useful people to do things, and they much prefer to be friends with or potential spouses with a person who is useful. So there's some, it's an interesting phenomenon. People who are slightly more useful than others across a period of a few years become way more useful. Why? Because a little bit of difference in perceived usefulness of a person makes it so that that person becomes the first choice by other people to ask for help. Parents, is this true? Have you ever found that you ask a child who is marginally better at one thing than the other to help you with that thing because you thought it would just be a little bit easier at this particular moment. Okay, so this happens. This happens at work, it happens at home, it happens in the church. One of the greatest compliments that anybody in authority can give to you is to give you more work. And so, if you are a person who you find that you are constantly receiving requests for help, constantly receiving additional work, it is an indicator that people find you useful. If that is not happening, try to figure out how to make it happen. Try to find opportunities to be useful to other people and try to make it so that you can be asked to do things. And also, when you volunteer, for people to go, oh yeah, that'd be great. Didn't realize you were free. So a young man in the faith is useful and he's trustworthy. He can be relied upon to perform the thing that has been asked of him. He can be relied upon to remember it. And this can be in small things. For example, this may seem like a little thing, but if I'm trying to rush out the door after smashing into a keyboard, the last couple of things I wanted to add to the outline, and I'm absolutely on time, and I rely upon Joshua to be able to take out stuff that I don't even have to think about. It's a great relief to me to not have to go through the checklist of stuff that needs to be taken out the door. And it is a thing where I can just rely upon the fact that he has something. Okay? Now, having a 12-year-old be able to be relied upon to just deal with something makes it so that I'm more likely to give him more work to do. And so that is a great blessing to me. And it is also something where he, as a result, is going to be having additional things put upon him as he's habituated to be relied upon. And you want that kind of thing. You want to be somebody that other people think is trustworthy, and you want load to be put on you. It is a good thing for a man to work in his youth, is what Proverbs says. 
is a good thing for a man to work in his youth. So the young man is useful and trustworthy, and they have a basic knowledge and character to allow the more mature believer to get more work done while continuing to develop their own understanding and skills. Okay, so the idea of having a basic knowledge that allows you to be useful, a basic character, a basic trustworthiness, so that you can help a more mature believer to get more done. Here's what we want. We want people to train us by just pouring into us, requiring nothing of us, and kind of moving on, and we go, great, I got this skill. Okay? But here's the reality. Everybody has limitations on their resources and time, and so the way you get the best training is by being useful so that people give you more training because then they want you around because you make it easier. Okay? And this was the ordinary arrangement. We talked before about how disciples, historically, that they would do something to help, to serve, and that would sort of be a tuition for the person who's helping to train them or teach them, and they would take burdens in order to help that person, and so that was a way of paying for teaching. And so there's going to be people who are veteran soldiers, there's going to be people who are fathers in the faith, there will be deacons, there will be elders, and you want them to pour time in. Now it's their duty, it's my duty, it's Deacon Schaefer's duty to disciple you and to seek to pull you along whether you make it fun or not. But we are human. And we might find it easier. And we might find there's more times when we pick up the phone to try to do something if you make it easier. I'm sure none of you have ever had the experience of thinking about doing some good work and then thought, no, that seems too hard right now. I'm not going to do it. But I think Deacon Schaefer and I may have had that experience. So if you make it easier, there's less likelihood of that happening. Okay, now, if you value wisdom, you're going to go, how can I have opportunity to help? How can I have opportunity to carry burdens? How can I be viewed as trustworthy and useful? And how can I take things on and then also receive teaching and training and in, in response to that by being around other people as they're doing work? Now, the goals of this document are to identify soldiers and, or young men in the faith to instruct soldiers how to be more discerning of good doctrine, intermediate objectives, and tasks to select for taking those objectives while helping to make soldiers more prudent in selecting the order of operations and more skilled in performing the work. So think about that for a second. Good doctrine, being more discerning in good doctrine, very helpful to avoid error, to avoid heresy, to be useful, to know what to study. Intermediate objectives, choosing them, right? We all have the goal of glorifying God, but if we don't pick objectives that are uh, obtainable, and if we don't take objectives that are going to help us to have more resources, to get more done, we're going to find that we accomplish things, or, and they're not very helpful. Or we fail to accomplish things because we have chosen things that are too hard. So task selection, stuff that's w useful to do in order to help to accomplish objectives. Now prudence in selecting the order of operations helps us to know how do we get the things that are the best rate of return, the things that are going to give us the most leverage, 
for the least additional effort. That includes doctrine, that includes skills, that includes relationship formation. And then as we develop skills and we become better at performing work, that's a benefit to us. We all add value, we all get benefit to ourselves, and we all also advance the kingdom, and we find that we're able to be useful to other people and build bonds with that. Point three. The goal of this document is to help soldiers to work alongside and under the leadership and supervision of veteran soldiers or fathers in the faith, officers. Four. The goal of this document is to instruct those who want to equip and mature soldiers in the faith so that the young man can become a father in the faith who is able to lead, equip, and mature others. There's too much work to do, and there are too many people that need to be trained. And there are rewards for this. If you're useful, if you accomplish things, there are rewards in this life and there are rewards in the next. And if you bless other people and help to equip them, you multiply out what gets done and you participate in their rewards. So, young men in the faith, they already understand basically the stuff that was listed out in the children's curriculum. They know the gospel, they know the doctrines of the incarnation of the Trinity, solas and tulip are well understood. They understand covenant theology. They know what the good is. They understand the law. They understand the outward and ordinary means of grace. They understand the communion of the saints. They have gifts and they want to use them to work with other people. They have a good understanding of the shorter catechism of the authority of the church, and what biblical conflict resolution looks like. And that's a listing out of the basic stuff that we went through in the children's curriculum. Young men in the faith are to be matured. What does that mean? That means they need consistent reinforcement of basic doctrines, constructing the logical implications and the applications of those doctrines. Okay, so what's that going to look like? Well, the Shorter Catechism gives you the really basic doctrine. You know what pulls it out in more detail? The Larger Catechism and the Confession. The Shorter Catechism gives you a skeleton of the Reformed faith, and the Larger Catechism and the Confession flesh it out. They need direct and clear corrections for inconsistencies of errors in doctrine. So get this. When we're dealing with children or we're dealing with catechumens, right, we need to be careful. We're more gentle. There's so much going on in their lives. There's so many problems they're starting to figure out. But once you're a young man in the faith, you know, what are we doing here? Are we, are we all just going to be afraid of telling each other when we're, you know, fighting the front lines together, hey, you're shooting the wrong way? Are we, are we going to waste time telling people, you know, you, you should start pulling a trigger. You've reloaded like four times. You know, what, what, what is the deal? We need to be useful, and so we're going to correct each other quickly when we are on the fighting line together. Okay, so scenario one. I want you to imagine these two scenarios. Scenario one, you're out on the street, you're evangelizing, and one of you says some sort of heresy to the other person you're evangelizing to, and the other person feels like they don't want to hurt your feelings, and so they don't bring it up. And they move on. And that happens, and you're just there, and you taught heresy to some guy in the street. Okay? Scenario two. You teach heresy to somebody while you're evangelizing. You don't realize it. It's just some place where you had error, and the way you said it was totally wrong. The person with you corrects you immediately on the spot for the false doctrine, even though it's in front of somebody else, because it's not about you, it's about the gospel. And it's about that person hearing the truth. Which one 
do you want? If you want scenario one, that's a pride problem. If you want scenario two, that is the appropriate response. So you want to encourage each other. When you are soldiers, you want your fellow soldiers to speak into your life and to speak into your doctrine. Three, young men need to be mature. They need to be accountable for knowing and applying the law. So there's the doctrine stuff, but once you're mature, the other thing is you want to be accountable for how you're living. Okay, So if there's some violation of what's laid out in terms of our doctrinal standards, if somebody's more mature, you should correct them more. For example, if you're worried, if you see me do something that you think is a relatively minor sin and you're worried there's some bigger sin in my life, and so you're trying to deal with that first, what am I doing in office? Okay, so you see me doing something, you should bring it to me. Okay, any fly in the ointment, any gnat, you should bring it to me. That's that's the responsibility of my public office. That's the claim to being mature. That's what happens claiming to be a father, claiming to be an elder, is you get people telling you stuff that's wrong. Now here's the thing that's frustrating, and I don't want this. The thing that's frustrating is when people look at other pastors and do not hold them to the same standard that they hold me to. What I find, and this is exasperating, and you've probably seen this on my behalf, is when people apply the standards that I teach from the Bible to me, but not to the pastor that I'm critiquing because their doctrine is wrong about something, and then they give that guy a pass and say, even though they think that I'm doing things more right, that they're going to choose to side with that guy, Instead, because I understand the standard better, and even though I'm applying it better, they're going to hold that guy to the lower standard that he holds to. That's nonsense. Okay, so that's something that I'm asking you to not do to me, and I'm asking you to protect me from it. You see people doing that. One of the ways you honor me as a pastor is you make sure that if somebody's saying something negative about me as a pastor and they're defending somebody else who's got a log in their eye when there's a speck in mine, that what you do is you say, let's apply the same weights and measures, okay? So, you should feel free to come to me about gnats. You should feel free to come to me about gnats. That's a part of the responsibility of my office. At the same time, that should be applied equally to people who are in the same office. Okay. So, people who are soldiers, who are young men in the faith, what they need is accountability for knowing and applying the law. They need detailed study in the Bible and in church history so they can begin to start understanding more of how things fit together and they can learn from the past. And they need testing and strengthening for points of weakness in doctrine and practice by regular engagement between one another and with fathers in the faith. They need sparring. They need sparring. They need to grapple with doctrine with other people who are grappling with doctrine. Okay, so this is... This is how we help each other to mature each other here. And then there's sort of a equipping to go off and deal with things. There's an equipping to do battle out there. So go to page three. Here's what young men need to be equipped with. They need tools to draw conversations from the less basic down to more basic principles and to develop the discipline to do this consistently. Okay? So again... There's all the stuff that people want to talk about. There's whatever's on you know, right-wing radio today. 
there's, you know, whatever it is, whatever this thing is, and you need to use that because a young man, your job is to fight. People want to talk about right-wing radio? Fantastic. What are you going to do? You're going to figure out how to draw that into the basic question of, that's interesting, we should consider. Should the government do those things? How would we know? We would know because the Bible tells us what governments ought to do. The Bible tells us the difference between right and wrong. The Bible tells us the difference between a true God and a false God. It tells us the difference between truth and error. Right. So this idea of drawing down to more basic things and asserting the revealed word of God against whatever thing raises itself up against the knowledge of God. What we need to do is to understand young men are training to fight by taking people down to more basic principles. You can engage on anything, and your goal is to figure out how to pin your opponent. And you do that by appealing to the more basic things, by examining their more basic assumptions. Two, the young man is to be equipped with practice and proficiency with sound patterns of words in defense of the truth. Okay, so there's a development of the ability to argue, and you're arguing with other people. You're arguing with unbelievers. You're arguing with people in whatever context. You are defending the faith, and you're going to find, as a young man, that stuff comes up that you've never thought about before. There's, there are objections that you've never considered. There's questions you didn't even know had been asked. And you're going to find those questions and go, I need an answer to this. And I need to figure out this objection. Is this objection right or not? And so the goal is for you to be able to know you have the stability from being established as a child in the faith, and now you're starting to do battle. You're arguing with people. You're doing apologetics. You're evangelizing. You're trying to take every thought captive, and you're trying to do it not just in you, but around you. And so what's going to happen is you're going to have to become proficient in using the word to defend the truth and in knowing efficient, effective ways to deal with that. So you're going to especially benefit from being able to have the least number of arguments that you've got to remember when you know how to go to more basic things. Okay? The less basic it is, the more options there are. The more stuff you've got to know. The more basic it is, the less you have to know to answer. Okay? So the question of what's true, okay, that's, that's, that's not that many things to memorize. And you go, well, are you saying that I know through reason alone? Are you saying I know through experience alone? Are you saying that truth is not rational? Are you presenting some sort of, you know, religious doctrine other than the Bible? Some, some claim to revelation? And you can go through and you can deconstruct those. It's a pretty small number of things you've got to know. You deal with metaphysical questions. And if somebody wants to assert that, you know, the universe popped out of nowhere, you know, that's pretty easy to deal with. So you, you deal with those things, you take it to those types of things, and you're able to deconstruct a worldview pretty easily. But if you don't know how to take it down, and you have not practiced to be proficient on those basic questions, you're going to find that your arguments are totally fruitless, and you're just rolling all over the map. You need to pin the other guy. Young men are overcomers. They know how to win. They know how to make the other person tap out. Three, young men need to be equipped to know the history and details of false institutions that they're encountering in battle. Okay, so that's why we have to pick a target. Because if you just go, all right, young men, learn about all the false religions and go out there and win. You go, okay, there's a lot of false religions. 
Okay, if we just target Mormonism, you can learn some crippling moves against Mormonism fast. You learn about Jehovah's Witnesses, okay. But if we say, let's learn about all the false religions all at once, that's going to be rough. What we have to do is we pick targets, right? We talked about this before. We pick targets. And so some of the easiest stuff to deal with is, frankly, churches that claim to be evangelical that aren't really churches. Okay, so there's some of the lowest hanging fruit, some of the whitest for harvest people, and some of the easy targets. We just have to study the Bible and show people that what's going on here is not church. Does your church deal with discipline at all? Is there a doctrinal standard at all? Is there any sort of behavior that's required? What is the worship like, right? You study this. This is studying the real thing. And somebody who claims the Bible is their authority, that's an easy target if you have a basic understanding. But if you try to go around and talk about everything, you're going to burn these people out and they're not going to answer your phone call. Inclusion in church life and mission, beginning to serve as assistant to deacons in the local body, removing burdens from the fathers in the faith. In other words, as a young man, you seek to find grunt work to do. You seek to find things that are lower skill, lower responsibility, and your goal is to remove them from people who are higher skill. And as you take on tasks that are lower responsibility, lower skill tasks, it shows trustworthiness that can be relied upon so that more work is put on. The greatest compliment that you can be given is to be given more work to do. If you want more work, ask for it. And that creates opportunity to increase that usefulness. Five, to methodically study relevant heretical teaching to consume recommended reform resources on the topic. So inside of those who call themselves reformed, you want to know the common errors that exist in the reformed world so that you can combat them. Okay, so there are some that you are very familiar with because they are very, very common in the reform world. We emphasize there's only two offices, deacon and elder, that are continuing. There's not a bunch of extra offices. We emphasize the idea that saving faith is just understanding with assent. Understanding the saving information and assenting to the saving information. We talk about how grace is not common, it's particular, right? These are things that you've heard a lot. These are examples of things that you find as errors in reformed circles a lot. And so being able to deal with relevant or common heretical teaching is important because you're going to find that people who you think should be your allies have some significant errors. And you need to help them to see the problems with those errors to avoid claiming to support the reformed faith and then building up something else. Six. To begin external facing ministry under the discipleship of a veteran soldier, a father, or an officer of the faith. This involves watching, listening, and judging first, then, you know, sort of attending public meetings with other churches and seeing what's going on in terms of governmental functions, attending your debates and discussions that have individuals involved, and you're watching, listening, and judging, and eventually you're increasing your engagement as you grow in knowledge and skill. Okay, your engagement increases, and you might be given the fighting position. Okay, first you're watching somebody else shoot, and then they say, your turn, you shoot. And so this idea of working in pairs and learning, you know, first you are told what to do, then you watch it, then you're asked to do it. And then they're going to get correction, because the first time you do it, you're going to do terribly. Terribly. So you're going to get corrected on the spot and told, no, do it this way. You're going to get watched again, and then you're going to be corrected. Okay, that's what it looks like to start picking up weight and start doing things. You do stuff, and then you get 
corrected. So the young man has to have the ability to take that correction. But also, we have to be careful to not give people too much work to do that's too hard for them because then all they're getting is correction and they're getting discouraged. So the goal is to give work that avoids overcorrection. So there's this gradual adding of weight that occurs. Okay, so there are resources that need to be looked at if you're a young man in the faith. So page three, bottom of that. As a young man in the faith, you need the Bible to be your constant companion. You need the Bible to be your constant companion. You want to read through the Bible, and and if you haven't read through the Bible at least once, you have not left the young man stage. So you have to have read the Bible. Now, there are parts of the Bible that need to be focused on. We emphasized certain parts of the Bible in the child stage. For example, Genesis 1 through 9. That needs to be well known. As a young man, you need to know that very well because it affects how you interpret the whole rest of the Bible. So you're going to deal with that and you're going to know it well. You're going to know the covenant institutions that are created by God in those. The individual, the household, the church, and the state. And then you're going to know the book of Proverbs well, especially chapters 1 through 9, which you studied a lot as a child. But you're going to know the rest of the book of Proverbs and you're going to understand its breakdown in terms of the sections and who they're for. The book of Romans should become a book that you are very familiar with in terms of its doctrinal and practical sections. And the book of John, which emphasizes Jesus is God. And so these are big things to know about. And that's something that was started in the child section. But a young man is somebody who doesn't totally miss out on the story of the Bible. Okay, so here's something that's I found frustrating. I think you've probably heard me complain about it a lot. And you're going to hear me complain again right now. Here's the complaint. We have no idea, evangelicals in America, we have no idea what happens in the story of the Old Testament. And it's not actually very hard to figure out. Okay? Here is how easy it is to figure out. Genesis through 2 Kings is a continuous history. Genesis through 2 Kings is a continuous history. Think about that for a second. That means if you just pick up the Bible and read it Genesis through 2 Kings, you're basically reading through like you would read through a novel from the beginning of the story to a particular point. Okay? It's just a continuous history. So Genesis through 2 Kings is given to us and it emphasizes in particular that chunk of text emphasizes the kingly office and the book of Matthew is an excellent gospel to focus on to understand the kingly office of Christ. So this begins to give you some idea how you can make the Bible far more understandable. Genesis through 2 Kings is a continuous history, and there's a really big emphasis in that chunk of text on the kingly office, and Matthew focuses on the kingly office of Christ. Now, another thing that's really helpful to be familiar with as a young man is you start to think about the texts that teach about priesthood, that teach about relationship and worship. Okay, and, and so Leviticus gives to us a way of seeing the beginnings of priestly things. Genesis has the origins of it, but at the same time, Leviticus gives us priestly office. First and second Chronicles tells you the exact same history that Genesis through Second Kings does in a summarized form. It tells you the exact same history that Genesis through Second Kings does. 
And then Ezra picks up that history and he tells us about the rebuilding of the temple. And remember this morning I emphasized to you that we need to remember there's, there's the destruction of the temple in 587 and there's the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Okay? 587 BC, that's the destruction of the temple that Ezra is dealing with. So Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, Malachi, Zechariah, and Haggai, they're all around that time frame. They all deal with that same cluster of events. And that's all we're going to be focused on, this rebuilding of the temple. Then we have the Psalms, which if you're singing the Psalms every morning and every evening, and you're singing them at church, the Psalms are going to instruct you in priestly practice. They're going to help to set your affections in the right place. They're going to help you to see what right worship properly is. It's going to set your heart in order. And so the Psalms are a part of this priestly practice that helps to form your soul. <coughs> and the Song of Solomon also does that. Okay, and here's the thing. A lot of people say, eh, you know, avoid the Song of Solomon until you're married, whatever. Like, you need to read the Song of Solomon. It's in the Word. Okay? It's, the problem is we don't really know what to do with it, and so many commentaries are just like efforts to like impose a bunch of sexual stuff into places where it isn't necessarily. Yes, the Song of Solomon is about sex between a husband and a wife, but that doesn't mean everything in it is some sort of veiled reference to sex. Okay? So what I want to strongly encourage you to do, if you're a young man in the faith, you need to start to understand the Song of Solomon is about the glories of married love, and you need to have your affections set on getting married love and understanding what that looks like and avoiding harlotry. Because one of the great battles of young men in the faith is there is a problem with promiscuity. There is a problem with pornography. There is a problem with the fact that all over the place there are half-naked women. And so what we need to deal with is the reality that there's a glory to be pursued and there is a false glory to be avoided that's talked about in Proverbs a good deal. And so the Song of Solomon, I want to encourage you to read Philip Kaiser's outline. Philip Kaiser's outline of the Song of Solomon is magnificent. So if you go to Biblical Blueprints, you'll find his one sermon summary of the Song of Solomon, which sadly, that recording is pretty messed up. But there's a printout and an outline that he gives, and so I would encourage you to look at that. It's a magnificent outline. helps you understand it, uh, and it's a, it makes the whole thing far more beautiful and easy to get. Okay, so when we go into the New Testament, the book of Luke emphasizes the priestly work of Christ. The book of Acts shows the transformation of what's happening from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. First and Second Corinthians emphasizes the transition from the temple to the church. Hebrews explains all sorts of typologies in their transition. This shows us the priestly order of the New Covenant. Now, the expectation is not that a young man's going to know how to exegete every single verse. The expectation is that a young man is familiar with these books. Ecclesiastes is a book that explains how to deconstruct false goods. It's an instruction manual about how to deconstruct false goods. You know, we are idle factories and people want to chase down pleasure power money or some other false god. And the book of Ecclesiastes arms us to deal with that. Now, it's fun to be able to show other people to be wrong and to be able to show them why pleasure is not the good or money's not the good, but it's even more fun to not let yourself be deceived about it. And we all struggle with it. So Ecclesiastes helps us to be able to combat that for ourselves. 
First and Second Timothy and Titus help us to understand the social order that the church should have, what our various roles should be, what we should strive for in terms of trying to be elder qualified men, officer wife qualified women, um, what the roles of people are based upon their stations in Titus 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians give us some of the key doctrine that we need. Um, the New Testament, they are powerful didactic books and they are short. Mark shows us the prophetic office of Christ, emphasizes it, and Daniel 9, Matthew 24, and the Olivet Discourse and the other Gospels in the book of Revelation help us to understand our postmillennial hope. So here's the deal. What I did not list out here was basically most of the prophetic books. Why? The prophetic books are much harder to understand. And the book of Revelation is much harder to understand than other parts of the Bible. So for a young man, you know, you can go read that. You should read the whole Bible. But here's the deal. If you do not understand the history of the Bible, if you don't know Genesis through 2 Kings, which is really easy to understand, like really easy to understand. You are reading a story and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. I understand. This guy did that thing at this time. Like, it is really easy to understand. If you don't know that story, don't try to go figure out what Ezekiel is talking about. You need to understand what is laid out. The basic story of the Bible is the foundation to understand the things that are more complex. If we go and read the prophets, that's great. You should read the prophets. But you need to spend time becoming familiar with the narratives, what has happened, because those are designed to be easier to understand. You know how I know this? Look at the beginning of Proverbs, which is for children. And then look at the later parts of Proverbs that are for more mature people. The first part is laid out in really simple narrative type form. There's a man, and he is walking by the way. And look, there's a harlot, and he is going to be attracted to this harlot. And he is like an ox off to the slaughter. Easy to get, easy to follow. You all understand exactly what's happening there. When you read later the things that say things like, Answer a man according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Do not answer a man according to his folly, lest you be like him. You've got to wrestle through that one and go, what is this talking about? This looks like a contradiction. It is harder. Okay, the, easy, the first part is easier. The later part is harder. The book of Proverbs teaches us how to read the rest of the Bible. And it shows us that there's simpler parts and there's more complex parts. So you go back and you read those narrative passages and you find that they're going to set you up to be able to understand the harder parts. So you get familiar with Genesis through 2 Kings, and it makes it so that you're able to understand the prophets. Here's the other thing about the prophets. They all are time-stamped. It's like, this prophet came here at the time of that king. And you go, I don't know anything about that king. No idea what he's doing. No, no idea what time frame this is. No idea what's going on. That uh, prophet said some interesting things. What's this about locusts? I don't know. Right? You read a prophet, and if you don't know the time frame in the Bible, that prophet feels largely fruitless to you. And so it is far more valuable to know where these things plug in. So a young man needs to study the timelines and study the idea of the stories and what's going on there. I'm going to pause there. And so far I've given to you a basic way of encouraging how young men should be encouraged to read through the Bible and what we're trying to get them to be developed into. We'll pick up from there in the future. Stand open to comments, questions, and objections.